previously on areas of agreement. Oftentimes I, I sense a kind of asymmetry of curiosity where it does seem, at least in my world, that liberals tend to be more interested in conservatives than vice versa. The more conservative among us might be more responsive to a message that is more or less toughen up and come debate. Of course, that's not, that's not exactly what we want to say, but we only get so far by using words like peace building and communicating across difference. It's like the most simple thing to say and yet the most difficult thing to do, which is just listen. I think what is really important to avoid when you're trying to have a difficult conversation is getting to this space of political correctness and you're not actually getting into any substance and you're not really sparking a real discussion of what am I showing up to this conversation believing and why do I believe it? I don't believe that civility is the answer to our country's problems. Conversations are helpful, uh, but they're not the solution. They can lay the groundwork for systemic change. As Joe Bubman, the executive director of Urban Rural Action, said just there, conversations aren't the be-all, end-all, but they're a start. And as episode three of the series showed, there's a lot to learn about how to have civil dialogue, how to listen deeply and truly understand someone who doesn't share your views before you share yours. Urban Rural Action, the group I've worked closely with over the past year and a half or so, has done a lot of workshops with groups on how to have constructive conversations across difference. This episode focuses on one particular group that UR Action has trained, college students. Coming up, you'll hear two students share what they learned from a recent workshop. They'll talk about what it's like trying to encourage thoughtful deliberation on their campus, and why that can be a challenge. You'll also hear a college professor who's dedicated his career to promoting public discourse on his campus talk about how he goes about doing that, inside and outside the classroom. I'm interested in the state of public discourse at colleges and universities because I'm a professor, and I used to cover higher education as a journalist. So yeah, this episode is right in my wheelhouse. But to be honest, before I started doing research for this episode, I didn't really have a good read on whether college students feel comfortable having constructive conversations across difference. I know from a study I did a few years ago that on social media, students tend not to share their opinions on divisive topics and get involved in political dialogue. Why not? Because in their experience, it does little to persuade other people or break new ground. My research team found that students generally try to avoid conflict because everything on social media is just shouting matches and echo chambers. That's the title of our study. Students said they prefer to discuss divisive political topics offline. But I'm not so convinced that many of them seek out this kind of dialogue in face-to-face -face settings either. And there's research to back that up. A nonprofit advocacy group called the Heterodox Academy surveyed about 1,500 college students in fall 2021. The top-level finding? More than 60% said they were reluctant to discuss at least one controversial topic, like politics, race, and gender. No matter the student's gender, religion, or where in the country they attended college, they often were not comfortable having conversations across difference. The most reluctant were Republicans and independents. Here's another finding that stuck out. 
63% of students said the climate on their campus prevents them from saying things that they believe. This episode isn't about censorship or political correctness or academic freedom, but you can't have a conversation about discourse on college campuses without understanding the broader context. So, deep breath, here goes. Let's start with what you've probably read about or seen on television. Scuffles erupted at New York University Thursday night around an event featuring a controversial conservative figure. Vice Media co-founder and actor Gavin McInnes was hit by pepper spray, according to school officials. McInnes was invited by the NYU College Republicans, but his speech was interrupted by demonstrators. Demonstrators set fires, smashed windows, and destroyed property at UC Berkeley. Anticipating trouble, police appeared to use flashbangs and pepper spray to clear the surging crowd of 1,500. The chaos on campus began before Milo Yiannopoulos was set to speak at Cal. Protesters at UCLA, about 200 altogether, and they wanted to make their voices heard. You have to draw a big line between people like Ben Shapiro, who's just kind of a regular old conservative uh, bigot. There was heavy security around the Ackerman Grand Ballroom. 600 people came to listen to conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. He spoke about several issues, but especially about free speech on campus. This is why there's always an attempt to shut me down when I come on campus, because the idea is that the things that I say are so inherently dangerous, they're so dangerous, and so scary that they provide a challenge to the existing mode of authority. These high-profile controversies often involve a conservative provocateur's planned visit to campus. Visits that sometimes happen and sometimes end up being canceled after organized protests. The debate isn't usually about whether a speaker's rhetoric is divisive and hateful. That's often the case. The better question is whether keeping them off campus or torpedoing their visit is a bridge too far. Many college students don't think so. About two-thirds say they have some level of acceptance for shouting down a campus speaker, and nearly one-fourth think it's acceptable to use violence to stop certain speech. Those findings come from a 2021 survey from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, an organization known as FIRE. A lot of people are troubled by these findings and say it's wrong to get in the way of a speaker's visit to campus. Here's TV and podcast host Adam Carolla in a recent media appearance. Think about the narcissism and the self-esteem it takes to say, I'm a guest on this campus. Ben Shapiro or whomever wants to come speak on this campus, it's going to offend me. So they may not speak on this campus. Carolla was involved in a 2019 documentary called No Safe Spaces that covers a range of free speech controversies. He summed up the film's main argument in this clip. If you're not going to let people with alternative views come onto the campus and share them with people, then you're really not going to get an education. I mean, after all, you're there to be educated. Others have made the same point even more forcefully. You can't live on a campus where people say stuff you don't like? That's Van Jones, a political commentator and former advisor to President Obama. Jones says he understands college students need to feel physically safe on campus. But there's another view that is now, I think, ascendant, which I think is just a horrible view, which is that I need to be safe 
ideologically. I need to be safe emotionally. And if someone says something that I don't like, that is a problem for everybody else, including the administration. And I think that is a terrible idea. President Obama also thinks it's a bad idea. In a recent speech, he said the purpose of college is to widen students' horizons. The way to do that is to create a space where a lot of ideas are presented and collide and people are having arguments. Obama says, of course, he came across people whose views he disagreed with, maybe even found offensive. But it was because there was this space where you could interact with people who didn't agree with you and had different backgrounds than you that I then started testing my own assumptions. And sometimes I changed my mind. I don't agree that you, when you become students at colleges, have to be coddled and protected from different points of view. In their 2018 book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Greg Lukianoff, president and CEO of the organization FIRE, and Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist at NYU, argue that shielding college students from viewpoints they don't agree with sets them up for failure. It interferes with their intellectual development. It makes students fragile. A few years before publishing their book, the authors say they began noticing students were asking university administrators for protection from speakers and even from books that they found traumatizing. This came in around 2013-2014, and it brought with it a whole package of innovations, you might say, microaggression training, safe spaces, trigger warnings. All this stuff appears from out of nowhere around 2013-2014. That's something I did not realize until I was reading your book. That's Haidt and HBO's Bill Maher discussing the book several years back. In the years since, Haidt has not only spoken out against the idea of safe spaces and trigger warnings, he's made it his mission to encourage viewpoint diversity and open inquiry on college campuses. He was one of the founders of the Heterodox Academy, the nonprofit advocacy group that did the Campus Expression Survey. The Heterodox Academy is made up of college professors, administrators, staff, and students who want to encourage constructive disagreement. Their mission aligns closely with urban-rural actions, and Joe shares some of the same concerns about the dynamics on college campuses. What I see as a trend towards a narrowing of acceptable discourse on college campuses and a discomfort among many college students with grappling with perspectives that are different from their own. To address this problem, Joe and a colleague at Urban Rural Action got funding from the Heterodox Academy to create a mid-Atlantic community. UR Action has hosted a series of online trainings throughout the winter and spring with college students at urban and rural campuses. I dropped in on one in late March. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, That's Logan Grubb, a UR Action program director and session facilitator. Logan started by posing this question. What is constructive dialogue? And you can feel free to unmute yourself to answer this question, um, or you can throw something in the chat. Here's where I get to brag a little. One of my students at Towson University, Megan Rose, had a very thoughtful response. The way that I think about it is, I mean, almost in terms of like, if if anyone's heard of, of nonviolent communication, um, where you're trying to get the best outcomes on, on both sides and, and not make it a lose-lose for anyone. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. The idea of, of nonviolence is key, right? During the session, facilitators pose the question, what's the biggest challenge in having constructive conversations on campus? 
there was one response that stood out to me from the rest. It went, I don't know where to start. When I asked Joe what he made of that comment, he said he could think of two different interpretations. One interpretation, it's just hard to find the right time and place to have conversations across difference. Another interpretation, if you're in such a conversation, what the heck are you supposed to do and say? Both of those interpretations or challenges are something we're doing something about because we're creating the space where we have students at different types of institutions and different types of communities who have views across the ideological spectrum. And then second, we are providing guidance to have the conversation. We're saying, you know what? Start with curiosity. Start with a question to learn about another person's views. Don't immediately try to persuade them that you're right. You can hear about Urban Rural Action's technique for teaching constructive dialogue in episode three. Once people in the session learned this technique, they got into breakout rooms to practice with some gentle coaching. These were 90-minute sessions, and Joe's realistic about what can be achieved in that short amount of time. But he hopes students will come away more curious. More respectful of different views. Better at asking open-ended questions, and with... A greater intellectual humility, recognizing that the views that they hold are not necessarily the only valid views. A willingness to come into conversations with an open mind. And explore views that are different from their own for the sake of understanding, not for the sake of agreement. Coming up next, session participants share their takeaways and describe what it's like to have these types of dialogues out in the wild on college campuses. About a week after their Dialogue Across Difference session, I gathered three participants on Zoom. One you've already heard from, but I'll let her introduce herself again. Uh, my name is Megan Rose. I am a senior journalism student at Towson University. The other student is Thalia Hubbard. I'm a first-year chemistry and public policy student at Gettysburg College. Thalia grew up in Pacific Grove, California around three different military bases that draw people from across the country. So I kind of grew up with what I thought was a lot of different cultures and a lot of different ways to think about an issue. And I kind of came to college and I was wondering, okay, if this is what I see as a lot of diversity in a conversation, what does everyone else see? She came to the dialogue across different session with the same question. Her session on the state of democracy around the world was small, just a few people which meant plenty of time for everyone to ask about other people's views, check for understanding, and break down their own view. One thing that stood out to me was um, a lot of the times when you're having academic conversations, you frequently need to prove why your point is the most applicable or the best in a situation. So I really enjoyed um, this dialogue that we were able to have because the focus was not on proving what point is best. It was focusing on collaboration and understanding. And I really enjoyed having that. What Thalia said, uh, it was a very collaborative environment. This idea of it's not about winning or losing. It's not about right and wrong. It's, it's about understanding different perspectives. That was really neat to see. Megan was struck by how hard it is and how effective it can be to just sit still. And being quiet and listening and being in that moment, not just thinking about the, your answer, what anyone else is gonna say, not predicting the next moves, just being present in the moment in the conversation. 
there was kind of a clarity for me. Again, um, community can't really be emphasized enough. That's what that conversation was. It was trying to build community where it's been lost otherwise. And in that sense, it was really neat because maybe that wouldn't have happened otherwise, that conversation. It was a safe space. But what happens when these conversations take place in spaces that aren't as safe, or at least not as structured? Spaces where there's no well-trained moderator, no clear ground rules or well-defined goals, and there's not a small group of highly engaged participants. Spaces like the college classroom, where professors who know their subject matter but often aren't experts in facilitating dialogue try to lead difficult conversations. What happens probably goes something like this. Students who are conflict-averse, who are afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing, stay on the sidelines. Some of their more vocal classmates dominate the conversation. They argue to prove each other wrong. One reason why constructive dialogue in the classroom is hard is that students often don't get much practice doing it in middle and high school. What they're used to is raising their hand to give the right answer. Then they go to college. And all of a sudden, their, their teachers are asking them, what do you think and why? And yeah, that's a steep learning curve. That's Kevin Marinelli, a teaching assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who took part in the Dialogue Across Difference session. Students are reticent at first in, in giving their opinions and shaping their opinions because they're just not used to, to being asked, first of all, and certainly not used to thinking about the classroom space in that way. I pose the question to Thalia. By the time they get to college, are students generally prepared to have deliberative dialogue? No, I don't think students have the skills or are taught the skills to have the sort of deliberative conversations that Kevin was describing. Unfortunately, when you're in school, a lot of what you're told is like, look like you're paying attention, even if you're not. I would love for us to be able to teach at an elementary school level or even at a middle school level the same kind of active listening we were taught in this dialogues program. It's almost kind of in line with like meditative ideas and philosophies where you have to be in the moment, present, grounded, not thinking about anything else. Those practices aren't commonly taught. And even if students feel well-equipped to listen and check for understanding, they may not feel comfortable expressing their views. In California, it's, it's so politically volatile that if you express anything other than a liberal opinion, someone's egging your car for two weeks straight. When Thalia got to Gettysburg College, she found herself in an unfamiliar situation. She remembers listening to two students have a debate about Confederate monuments. One student took a liberal position, and the other took the conservative position, and neither feared for their car. And I remember, really, it, I cannot phrase it any other way than shock, watching these people with two entirely different opinions sit there and kind of concede, okay, I hear what you're saying. So to recap, students often come to college without much experience having dialogue across difference. Because, for one, it's not a big part of the K-12 curriculum, and also because where they come from, there may not be much tolerance for different viewpoints. In order to give students a different experience in college, professors have to do some heavy lifting. Teach students how to have frank, productive dialogue and debate, 
and encourage viewpoint diversity in the classroom. Kevin, the UNC communication professor, makes that his mission. As executive director of his university's program for public discourse, he teaches students to weigh evidence, to make informed decisions, and to craft compelling arguments. Ultimately, we're preparing students to engage in public discourse more effectively and more ethically, but by extension, we're, we're empowering students to do democracy more responsibly as well. But what does that look like in practice? Kevin says one of his go-to class exercises, the one he advises faculty in many disciplines to use, is creating a code of conduct to guide classroom discussions. Early in the semester, students collaborate on a code of ethical norms that they promise to follow during debates and deliberations. One of the things I do during this activity is to brainstorm hot-button issues. Students don't make any judgments. They just identify what the issues are. Kevin's been doing this exercise for a number of years. And when I first started doing it, there were maybe a couple issues that would come up. Issues that you'd expect, like abortion. And now when I do this activity, it's just about any political issue you can think of. The list is a mile long. So every contentious issue is identified as a hot button issue. So there's no nuance there. There's no distinction between just contentious issues and the, and the hot topics, the blood boiling issues. It's all kind of seen as the same. And so I think that's a really disconcerting trend that we, that we have to address. Kevin gives students a chance to strike a topic from the list if they don't think they can discuss it responsibly in class. But typically, students don't take them up on that offer. They might consider a lot of topics radioactive, but in this classroom setting at least, they're up for discussing them under the right conditions. That is, Kevin says, if they've bought into the code of conduct and everyone in the class is held accountable to following it. Kevin's convinced that students want to have conversations that challenge them and they want to be exposed to different viewpoints. The Heterodox Academy survey certainly backs him up. 88% of students agreed that colleges should encourage students and professors to interact respectfully with people whose beliefs differ from their own. But Kevin, like many professors, always gets some students who aren't ready to engage. Some students will come in and say, I don't want to talk about politics. You know, just outright, no particular issue, just politics in general. And so I say, you know, what do you, what does politics mean to you? And often the way they're defining politics, I say, geez, I, don't, I wouldn't want to discuss that either. Kevin says their reference points are usually toxic conversations on social media or talking heads on cable news trying to eviscerate each other without a sense of humanity. Forget about all that, Kevin tells students. Then he does some A-plus reframing. We're not talking about politics. We're talking about issues that affect our community, he tells them. And then all of a sudden, it takes off a lot of the weight, a lot of the baggage that, you know, politics and the narrow uh, confines uh, operates with. So Kevin's formula for having productive dialogue includes creating a code of conduct and framing discussions in a way that de-emphasizes the toxic elements of politics. Thalia says avoiding politicized terms helps a lot. In a first-year seminar she was in, students had conversations about race and society. We refuse to call it critical race theory because that name, critical race theory, 
is what starts bothering people. So we took that away and we started discussing the topic, the thought process, the material behind the name without ever saying the words critical race theory. I find it interesting if you go up to most people and start asking about the ideas behind critical race theory, they have no clue what you're talking about. You say critical race theory and they get upset, but if you're just asking about the ideas behind it, they're willing to have a conversation. And that matters for a lot of different topics. Like you see it with gun violence versus um, gun reform and gun control. You see it with Black Lives Matter and defund the police. But if you really dig into these things beyond reading it at that superficial level where people are arguing, where people have that automatic wrath, well, it's not unfund the police. It's give more money to the community from the billion dollar police budget that a lot of our cities have. Of course, there's more to having productive dialogue than just setting the terms of engagement. But the first step is creating a space where students feel comfortable talking. And all of this assumes that students are the ones who need to be persuaded to have conversations across difference. But sometimes it's the teacher who needs persuading. There's an increasing number of faculty, particularly in the humanities, that are saying, well, no, we don't like this. We don't like the notion of giving uh, equal opportunity to all sides. You know, some issues are just already decided and you need to get on, on the train and that's it. In other words, some ideas are just beyond the pale, not worthy of consideration. It ultimately creates an orthodoxy and either you, you, know, you accept the orthodoxy or you don't, but there's no room for discourse there. But a lot of faculty don't need to be persuaded to encourage viewpoint diversity. They just need some coaching on how to do it. Kevin consults with them on how to facilitate class dialogue and debate. But students spend most of college outside of the classroom. So what about constructive deliberation in those settings? In the idealized version of college, students stay up late in their dorm rooms talking about big issues of the day. But in reality, there's not much of a chance to get people together in a room to have serious conversations about things like gun laws and voting rights. That's why Kevin established a group last year called the Agora. And this is a cohort of undergraduate students who are committed to the study and practice of public discourse in different forms. The group meets bi-weekly. Typically, a handful of students show up to discuss contentious topical or perennial issues like affirmative action. And they sometimes address questions that are more philosophical. Questions like, what is gender? At each session, Kevin focuses on a different mode of communication. Dialogue one week, debate another week. And at other times, they do critical reading and discussion. Kevin's idea here is to switch things up so students are prepared for all sorts of conversations. Ones that are less structured. The real world of democracy and the real world of public discourse is much messier. And very rarely do you get to define the terms in any clean and clear-cut way and say, okay, we're going to have a nice dialogue about this and we're both going to enter that dialogue in good faith. At Gettysburg College, Thalia has found ways to have conversation across difference outside the classroom. She's an Eisenhower scholar, which means she's been recognized for her work promoting civic engagement. She's part of a student council that helps plan a debate through the campus's Eisenhower Institute. In that role, she helps find the moderator and selects debate topics, like voting access, immigration reform, and inflation. Because it's 2022 and the state of discourse is what it is, Thalia said the student council had to cross off several topics off the list because they were considered too divisive. 
a main one that we have discussed as an issue not to discuss in class or at this debate um, would be critical race theory. Or abortion. And I should say here, a reason, maybe the reason, why these topics made it onto the do not debate list is because the debate includes representatives from the college Democrats and the college Republicans. When Democrats and Republicans debate, things tend to get heated, and Thalia said on her campus it's no different. Yet another topic that initially made it onto the do not debate list was book bans. What could possibly illustrate the state of public discourse better than students self-imposing a ban against discussing book bans? But what we eventually kind of decided as a group was we want the topics to be uncomfortable. It's a debate. We want people to have a chance to share their opinion. And we really only decided on three topics that went on that we will not be using this list. That list did not end up including book bans but it did include critical race theory, abortion, and this one was a bit of a head-scratcher to me, the role of parents in education, meaning whether or not parents have the right to insert themselves into discussions about what should be taught at schools and whether there should be mask mandates, that kind of thing. Kevin perked up when he heard this list of off-limit topics. What I find so interesting about that is the issues that are so hot-button are issues that are very visible, divisive congressional issues. If we were to take away that, strip the baggage of the, you know, the political conversations that have shaped those issues and take a step back and think more broadly about critical race theory or about abortion, they may be more engaged. I absolutely agree. All of this, what it comes down to is the people. So the people in this group are, of course, the political organizations at this school. And for that reason, we do not feel like we can have a civil conversation on those topics with this group. But if you take the party labels away and students get in a room together, Thalia thinks it's more likely that people might be willing to debate these issues in good faith. I also wondered whether the venue matters. Debates are inherently performative. There's an audience and people looking to score points. What about dialogue that's behind closed doors? Maybe the college Republicans and Democrats would actually have a more fruitful conversation in private. Nope. Dahlia said those groups had a joint meeting recently to discuss ways to collaborate. Someone brought up critical race theory and the role of parents in deciding whether their students should learn about it in school. And immediately, it was no audience, literally just college Republicans and college Democrats having a joint meeting, but it instantly just inspired so much chaos and disarray that the meeting had to be cut short. So what are my takeaways from the conversation I had with Megan, Thalia, and Kevin? Well, I still can't say that I have a strong read on how students feel about safe spaces or trigger warnings or controversial speakers who are banned or not banned on campus. Nor do I have a more conclusive answer on whether most college students really want to engage in dialogue across difference. I wish all students were as civically minded as Megan and Thalia, but that's just not the case. But here's what I did learn. There are a lot of topics that students just do not want to discuss. This hesitancy to grapple with contentious issues concerned Kevin. And it concerns me too. Let me be clear, I don't think college students are necessarily fragile or lack intellectual curiosity. Some might be so sure of their viewpoints, you know, so dug in, that they don't see a need to listen to the other side. But the narrative that I think better explains what's happening is that many students just don't have the tools to engage in a productive dialogue on divisive issues. And for good reason, they view political discourse as toxic. So what's the solution? 
Devoting class time to teaching students how to deliberate, how to have productive dialogue, is certainly a good thing. Creating extracurricular groups like the Agora to give students spaces outside of class to practice these skills is another answer. The Heterodox Academy and groups like Urban Rural Action are trying to create even more opportunities for students to have constructive conversations. More is better, but it's not an easy task. On the next episode, a group of Maryland residents sets out to learn about the challenges facing immigrant business owners in a small town near the Chesapeake Bay. Thanks for listening.